Welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Ice and Review. Today we'll be listening to staff writer Eric Pomranke read his article of Ashes and Evergreens in the most recent edition of Ice and Review. And afterwards we will be having a discussion. We come to the windswept, barren highland for solitude. To be alone away from it all. The immense openness of Iceland's landscape is only rivaled by the silence that can be found here, punctuated by sharp winds and distant bird calls. But the ash and gravel that cover this subarctic desert hide a story. Out here, so far removed from people, we stand among the scars of human settlement. We come to nature to escape ourselves, but find instead a mirror. We are not so alone in this strange and empty place. This, too, is man-made. A new footbridge spanning the Thjosa River in South Iceland opened in 2021. This was celebrated by hikers eager to further explore this scenic region of Iceland. But it also inspired a different kind of celebration. It was the first major construction project in a millennium to be built with timber sourced exclusively from Iceland. Last year also saw several other milestones in Icelandic forestry, with a Sitka spruce near Kikarbæklustur, South Iceland, reaching 30 meters, a post-Ice Age first, and forest coverage finally surpassing 2% of Iceland's total land area. Admittedly, this figure includes shrublands as well, but in 1990, forest coverage only accounted for 7,000 hectares. The figure now stands around 45,000 hectares, more than a five-fold increase over the course of just 30 years. And where just decades ago only a handful of sites were considered viable for forestry, Icelandic forests are growing in places once considered beyond the pale of the habitable world. Icelandic forestry is no longer the oxymoron it once was, but As it grows in importance as well as size, so also grow disagreements about its future and methods. At the center of this debate is the coming merger, or rather reunion, the once united agencies were split apart in 1914, of the Icelandic Forest Service and the Soil Conservation Service, which has thrown some of these disagreements into sharper relief, including the use of non-native species, and the role of the carbon credit market in Icelandic forestry. No matter their differences, everyone who participates in the afforestation efforts goal is simple. To reclaim a part of the original landscape. One of Iceland's greatest successes in the field is Hekleforest, or Hekleskogur, nestled in the once lush Thjossadalur Valley. It is generally agreed that prior to human settlement, Some 20 to 40 percent of Iceland was forested. The Book of Settlements states that, quote, There were forests everywhere, between the mountains and the shore. Hekla is one of Iceland's most active volcanoes, and since forestry efforts began in the region, it has seen five major eruptions. The birch woodlands around Hekla are quite resilient and can survive eruptions, even when only the tops of the trees are left sticking out of the newly deposited ash and tephra. This is important, because other vegetation, such as grass and low-lying shrubs, do not survive eruptions. Forests, especially tall ones, form durable shelters, which prevent ash from spreading and forming deserts on nearby land. Experience has shown that Hekla eruptions regularly deposit half-meter-thick ash layers up to 10 kilometers from the volcano. With the next eruption of Hekla, only a question of when, not if, the Hekla forest is also an important investment in the future of this region of Iceland. By the turn of the century, forests in this region of Iceland had been reduced to a few isolated patches along Thjossadalur Valley and Burfet Mountain explains Hrein Oskarsson, former director of the Hekla Forest Project. But thanks to afforestation efforts, the region is now one of Iceland's largest wooded areas, extending up Hekla and the surrounding slopes to an elevation of 600 meters. 
For the previous generation of Icelandic foresters, elevations above 200 meters were considered the limit. Some of the methods that have enabled this success, Hrein says, are the use of soil-stabilizing plants like lime grass and lupine, and the use of fertilizers. Chemical fertilizers often suffice, but in particularly troublesome areas, bone meal is used, an effective slow-release fertilizer. Thanks to these methods, the birch forests of this region have now expanded more than any other Icelandic woodland in recent years. When the Soil Conservation Service acquired Gunnarsholt Farm in 1926, it and many surrounding farms had been abandoned to the encroaching sand drifts. Centuries of sheep grazing and soil erosion had left swathes of once-productive farmland in South Iceland, little more than a desert. Gunnarsholt became something like a living laboratory for soil conservation work in Iceland, ultimately becoming the headquarters of the Soil Conservation Service. The work there was a great success, and at its height, Gunnarsholt was the largest farm in Iceland, with 1,600 sheep and 600 cattle raised on what had been desert in living memory. During this time, the Forest Service protected the remnants of birch woodland and experimented with new tree species, but did not work on the afforestation of eroded land. Although forestry and soil work share many goals, such as reducing erosion, the Forestry Service and Soil Conservation Service seldom worked together. One project, however, was fated to bring these star-crossed agencies back together. It was due to the Soil Conservation Service's success in the region that in 2007, a contract was signed between the Forest Service, the Soil Conservation Service, and the state to finance a project that would become the Hecla Forest. A century after forestry and soil conservation efforts began at Gunnarsholt, 90,000 hectares of wood and shrubland now grow around the volcano Hecla. Small teams, both volunteers and workers, work tirelessly to repair the damage done by humans here. One individual can plant several thousand saplings in a day, with a small team armed with nothing but an ATV and some fertilizer planting tens of thousands of trees in a day. The work is difficult, often done in the wind and rain, and the mechanical rhythm can take a toll on one's back. Planters stab at the earth with a shovel, plant a sapling, throw in a handful of fertilizer, all in one deft movement, and then it's two paces forward and the same thing again, for hours. The hard work means that the teams working in Hecla Forest have to take frequent breaks, often working for three days straight and then resting for two. But during the bright, clear summer nights of June, some teams have been known to work all day, challenging each other to surpass their records. In addition to being an inspiring success story, the wooded lands known collectively as Hecla Forest are also providing a model for other forestry projects in Iceland. Due to the use of native species and close cooperation between agencies, municipalities, and private landowners. Of the 1,000 square kilometers to the north, west, and south of Hecla, up to 600 kilometers will be covered by native birch and willow forests in the next 50 years. The area comprising these forests represents approximately 1% of Iceland's total land area. Afforestation is a term used for forestry in regions that have not previously supported woodland. Reforestation refers to replacing woodland that has been lost in the recent past. Afforestation is particularly difficult as these regions often have sparse, nutrient-poor soil. Although Iceland once supported extensive forest, it has been deforested for so long that forestry efforts are considered a form of afforestation. In December of 1997, Julia Butterfly Hill climbed up a California redwood. When she eventually climbed down, it was a full 738 days later, in December of 1999. In addition to protecting a nearly 1,000-year-old tree from being logged by the Pacific Lumber Company, she was also setting a dramatic precedent for environmental activism, a stunt both to be imitated and dispersed into the popular imagination. These days, 
environmental activism looks decidedly less free-spirited. Major forestry projects more likely to be spearheaded by international financiers than by stereotypical activists. For better or for worse, activism has become monetized in the form of the international carbon credit market. Established by the framework of the Kyoto Protocol and refined by the Paris Agreement, international markets in carbon trading have emerged which seek to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through financial mechanisms. Carbon credits, which represent one ton of CO2 or equivalent greenhouse gas, are traded with the goal of reducing global emissions. In theory, nations that come under their allowed limits can sell their excess emission permits to others that have exceeded their limit. The system also allows participants to offset emissions through environmental projects in developing nations and green investments such as forestry. A key requirement behind the system is that of additionality. That is, the actions must not be already required by law or otherwise expected to happen without human intervention. Additionally, a voluntary carbon credit market exists for organizations wishing to go carbon neutral. When travelers are asked to check a box to make their journey carbon neutral, it is of course not the airline itself planting trees. Instead, companies can choose to approach brokers who will manage the company's investments in environmental projects. However, the voluntary carbon market presents a tricky balancing act. On the one hand, the barrier to certification must be sufficiently low to encourage investment and participation. While, on the other hand, standards must be high enough for these projects to actually have the impact they claim. Many early carbon sequestration projects were uncertified, meaning that they can't be used on this voluntary market. The best of these projects, however, will insist that a company cut their operating emissions down as far as possible, and only then will they cover the difference. For some working in Icelandic forestry, the entry of private enterprise is one of the most exciting directions in the field today. Until very recently, Icelandic forestry was almost entirely funded by the state. But planting can prove expensive, very expensive. The lifetime cost of the Hekla project, including planting an annual average of around 280,000 new saplings, is estimated to be around 6 billion ISK, or around 44 million USD. Indeed, Iceland may prove to be particularly attractive for NGOs and corporations looking for green investments, precisely because its centuries-long struggle with forestry has been so difficult. Iceland's afforestation struggles have produced some of the best monitored forests in the world, with comprehensive statistics and meter-by-meter vegetation surveys going back for decades. Of the several international projects currently active in Iceland, at least two are currently within the bounds of the Hekla Forest. Mossy Earth, a UK-based nonprofit which focuses on rewilding ecosystems with native vegetation, and Landlife, a Netherlands-based company that specializes in data-driven carbon offset projects. Such companies have also allowed large carbon-emitting industries to help finance forestry efforts, the Icelandic fishing industry now a major player in the field as well. According to surveys conducted by the Icelandic Forest Service, 95% of Icelanders are in favor of expanded woodlands. But there are critics of this style of environmentalism, those who doubt that the climate crisis will be solved by market mechanisms. Critics, such as former assistant director of the Soil Conservation Service, Andres Arnolds, states that at best, these projects may delay more meaningful environmental action, and at worst, may not actually offset carbon as claimed. Very often, these carbon offsets can be a kind of modern indulgence. Companies buy off their green sins and continue with business as usual, Andres tells me. Even relatively bare grasslands can store surprising amounts of carbon, Andres says. What looks like empty land, to many, can store up to two-thirds of the carbon that a forest would. Additionally, afforestation projects often harrow large portions of the land before planting. Such practices disturb the soil, and can even aid in carbon release. 
meaning that carbon offset projects themselves can often be significant sources of emissions. To be able to plant at scale, many carbon offset projects are also monocultures, which isn't ideal from an ecological perspective, Andreas explains. Icelandic forestry has, for a long time, focused simply on planting trees. But a forest is also an ecosystem, with everything that lives in it. It's not simply a collection of trees, he says, but that's what they're planting. Trees, not forests. Planting can be difficult, and historically, the most effective method for large-scale planting has been monoculture plantations. Over time, however, Icelandic foresters have switched to a method that prefers small monocultures of different species clustered together, such that one hectare might have several different monocultures. This, in theory, combines the efficiency of large-scale planting with a more diverse landscape. And then there's the fact that the native Icelandic forest, overwhelmingly composed of birch, is a monoculture as well. When we think of biodiversity, our mind often drifts to the tropical rainforest and image of multicolored flowers, vibrant bird life, and dense, verdant forests. This is, of course, an image that Iceland will never totally live up to, but nevertheless, Iceland has its own native biodiversity that's worth protecting. For Andres Arnolds, the Hecla forest is one of the best models we have. It's just a classic example of what we can achieve in Iceland, he tells me. So many local people have gotten involved in planting, and we've restored so much diversity in the Hecla region in the last years. A mature tree can absorb some 22 kilos of CO2 annually, the approximate equivalent of 180 kilometers, 112 miles, driven in an average passenger vehicle. The use of birch in Hecla forest isn't just a political statement. As a native species, it's well-suited to the local conditions. Birch is a pioneer species, says Rein. Such pioneer species are often the first species to colonize an ecosystem after a disruptive event like a volcanic eruption or forest fire. Birch also produces many seeds at a young age, he says, meaning that it can spread very quickly under the right conditions. Although birch is in many ways the ideal candidate for reforesting Iceland, certain non-native species have also played a role in Icelandic afforestation. Lodgepole pine, for instance, can tolerate nutrient-poor soils, meaning that it can be used in areas that would otherwise remain empty. Likewise, the aforementioned lupine was intentionally introduced from Alaska to the Icelandic landscape for its nitrogen-fixing properties. Now blanketing many hillsides, it is considered by some to be an invasive species. Hrein Oskarsson, however, is quick to tell me that the Hecla forest has not prohibited the use of non-native species. What the Hecla Forest Project has done is to encourage the use of native species, but it's a diverse area. It's not obligatory to use birch, but that is our main goal. We want to promote biodiversity in the area, and many species in Iceland have grown to be dependent on birch woodlands. Often, with non-native plantations, we don't get the kind of biodiversity that we'd like to see. Hrein isn't a purist about what does or doesn't belong in Icelandic woodlands, and he reminds me that some two to three hundred species of flora, which we consider to be Icelandic, have been imported through the ages. While it's nice to think that the Hecla birch forests represent a return of the landscape that would have once greeted Icelandic settlers, the goal isn't simply to revert to a state before human intervention. The goal, says Hrein, is to restore the function of the ecosystem. We want to see less erosion and more even runoff in the landscape. We want to see stable soils that can withstand catastrophes and to create taller vegetation that both stands up to eruptions and can sequester carbon. But this doesn't mean simply spreading trees everywhere. We want to expand and preserve birch woodland without restricting other land use, he says. Nevertheless, even the best-intentioned projects can have unforeseen consequences. The Icelandic landscape has been barren for so long that forests, even native ones, can cause disruptions to established habitats. Many shorebirds, such as the golden plover, sandpiper, and oyster catcher, make their nests in open areas of the lowlands. They prefer these open areas so they can better spot predators like foxes and, increasingly, domestic cats— 
Notably, however, they refuse to nest near tree lines because they associate trees with predator activity. And even a small stand of trees can deny these birds a large nesting area. We have to accept that human settlement has already totally changed the flora in Iceland, Rein explains to me. We haven't seen a reduction in these bird populations yet, but we should also think about how our situation was at the time of settlement, with vast birch woodlands across the lowlands. Now we're beginning to see birds in Hecla forests that we never saw before. In the future, we may well not have the same species at the same sites. Quite simply, we're creating new habitats. Not all non-native species are considered to be invasive species, even if they are widespread. Invasives are non-native species which threaten local biodiversity. But plenty of non-native plants manage to find sustainable niches of their own. In the early aughts, one German by the name of Thomas Mann, no, not that Thomas Mann, worked in the Hecla forest area, shortly before the official founding of the project in 2007. In his evenings and days off, he was accustomed to taking long hikes through Theosodaler Valley. He would often take clippings from the day's work, mostly poplar or willow, and plant them here and there. There wasn't much method to these trips, and although many of these saplings never took hold, some did, especially those that grew near lupines. One area in particular that Thomas wandered was Sandartunga, a sand-strewn lava field, and historically one of the most degraded areas of the Theosodeller Valley. It still presents its difficulties to afforestation today, but among the pockets of lupine and open stretches of gravel, there now also stand the defiant descendants of Thomas's efforts. It's not hard to imagine that soon, in decades, not centuries, these lonely trees will be crowded in by other adventurous pioneers. Since 2021, Hecla Forest is no longer an independently funded project. But the idea of the project nevertheless lives on and it is now listed on the National Heritage Registry among such prestigious peers as Gulfoss Waterfall, Hornstrander Nature Preserve, and Reynisfjara Beach. As puffins and plover begin to descend on Iceland with the coming of spring, this time of year likewise sees a flock of students, volunteers, scientists, and landowners descending on Hecla Forest to continue this important work. Uh... Well, thank you for that, Eric. Thank you. Um, at the beginning of your article, you mentioned the idea of escape. Uh, just out of curiosity, what are you uh, escaping when you take a trip to the Icelandic countryside or the highlands? Ooh, uh, that's, <laughs> that's maybe a big question, uh, but maybe the short answer is my phone. Um, you know, I mean, it's really just refreshing to just be out in this wide open landscape and yeah, just be among these sounds and the wind and the birds and to be completely away from this little digital trap that always has you in its hold. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, our colleague, uh, Gole, who's, uh, so the, uh, our photographer, he, he wrote an article about hot stranded, mm, yeah. which, uh, you reference, uh, in the piece and, you mentioned in that article from last summer, I believe, getting on to, um, I think, a, a ferry or a boat to get to his destination in Hotstrandir and, and having to turn off his phone. And I remember experiencing that vicariously quite strongly, the, uh, the notion of just shutting off your device is almost uh, quite frightening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are really very few places, uh, I mean, e even in the Icelandic island now, uh, that you're just kind of totally disconnected. And, you know, I mean, uh, specifically in this area, Thjósadalur, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, like there, there are towns out there, there's settlements. Uh, you're not kind of totally away from it in that way that you are maybe like in Hornstrandir, but, you know, I mean... Um, Certainly this sense of getting away from it all uh, was, you know, I mean, like, I guess the thing that I just was thinking about as I was writing this that kind of interests me is, you know, like we are all influenced in some way by, I don't know, like some 
romantic idea of what it's like to be in nature. And, you know, like in some sense or other, we're always kind of, um, I don't know, uh, just like often when I see these pictures on social media and it's like this person, uh, you know, like standing in front of a waterfall or something. And it just kind of strikes me how much we're still kind of influenced by this paradigm of like the 19th century of romantics and, you know, like painters like Caspar Friedrich and stuff. And like somewhere in the back of our head, like even if we know that painter's name or not, uh, we all kind of have this image of like the wanderer above the sea of mist or something. And we kind of think like, this is how you're supposed to be in nature. And, you know, uh, I crave that kind of experience definitely. Uh, but it is also interesting how even when we go out to these places that we perceive as totally away from it all, like these are still in a lot of ways, man-made landscapes. I mean, a lot of like these most empty areas of the Highland are empty because of sheep grazing, uh, erosion and these are all things uh, that happen because of human settlement and so i think it's very kind of interesting tension right it's like we want to be in the middle of nowhere but we've also kind of created this place yeah that's interesting and um i imagine that you visit visited uh yourself yeah i mean uh, as i was writing this uh, i you know wanted to go out to hecla forest of course and just kind of check it out and just spend a weekend out there uh, you know, it's it's a really beautiful area, lots of nice waterfalls. You know, I mean, um, just in case it's not clear from the piece, uh, the Hecla Forest isn't one continuous woodland. Uh, the, you know, 600-some square kilometers of woodland aren't all contiguous. It's not, you know, it's you can't walk through 600 square kilometers of forest, like, uninterrupted, right? I mean, there are definitely still areas that are totally desertified just kind of empty stretches of gravel so you know these are pockets of forest that are being planted uh, by you know both the soil conservation service and the forestry service and so you know this is still very much a kind of sparse network of little plantations um but you know i mean i will say that uh yeah, sure. Uh, there's this old joke that everybody always tells about the Icelandic forest, right? Like we all know how it goes. Uh, what do you do when you're lost in an Icelandic forest? Well, you stand up uh, and, you know, the joke, haha, uh, is that they're so small, like you can't get lost, right? Um, but, you know, there are actually large forests out there. Uh, there is, you know, forests that are at least, you know, dozens of hectares uh, large with, you know, 10, 15 meter tall trees. And I mean, like these are not totally sites that we always expect to see in Iceland. And it is a very unique area. Yeah. And, and were you, uh, did you camp? Uh, you mentioned spending the weekend. Yeah. So you were in a tent in, in the forest? Yeah. There's a nice little uh, campground uh, out in this area that I mentioned, uh, Sandartunga. And how long is the uh, drive, say, from Selfos, for example? Oh, from Selfos? Oh, that, from there, it's pretty close. I mean, uh, maybe just 30, 45 minutes, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, so from the capital area, I mean, you can definitely do it as a day trip. I mean, it's maybe two hours or so to get to some of these places. And it's mainly birch wood and, and some lupine? Yeah, I mean, so lupine, of course, isn't a tree as such, um, but, you know, it was one of these species that was introduced, um, you know, so it kind of prevents erosion. It kind of puts its roots down and it stops all the dust and gravel from blowing around. Uh, so, you know... Uh, it is a somewhat controversial species here, but yes, there is a lot of lupine out there. The main trees are lodgepole pine, Sitka spruce, and of course the native birch. Yeah, um, and as you mentioned in your piece, um, forests cover some 2% of Iceland's uh, territory, and that's a, a five-fold increase over the past 30 years. That's quite uh, astounding, that figure. Yeah, I mean, um, it is happening pretty quickly, actually. And, you know, I mean, this 2% uh, mark is, of course, to some extent, a little arbitrary. It's a thing that, you know, we humans have decided to measure. And, you know, I mean, it it's not really telling something about nature, if that makes sense. It's just this little landmark that we've kind of decided to celebrate um 
you know, I mean, this maybe isn't totally related, uh, but I think just in general, something that really surprised me in writing this is how, I mean, I don't want to use the word controversial because it sounds a little bit dramatic, but there are very different opinions on how Icelanders should proceed with forests. And there are some people who are very passionately of the opinion that we actually have enough um, and we actually don't need more. And, and this argument, you know, will take both a kind of ecological angle, uh, which is that, you know, a lot of these trees that are being planted are non-native. So for instance, Sitka spruce and lodgepole pine, uh, both of those come from North America um, and then, you know, there's also this more kind of aesthetic argument, uh, which is that the Icelandic landscape in its openness and emptiness is unique. And maybe we don't need to just kind of impulsively plant trees. And maybe there's something special about this kind of open, empty landscape that's worth preserving. Um, the you know, kind of sub-argument to that stance, though, uh, which I'm maybe a little bit less sympathetic to, um, is then economic because, uh, you know, a lot of people will say that the tourists come here precisely for this unique landscape, and if Iceland turns into just, you know, any other country, say, like Sweden or Finland, uh, you know, what's the point? Uh, you know, I mean, for me, that's not the group, that's not the best way to think of it. You know, I think that, uh, the ecology and the biology need to come first. Um, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure people will find the landscape beautiful no matter what and choose to visit with or without the trees. But, you know, I mean, in my opinion, uh, there are considerations that should be thought of first. <laughs> yeah. And, um, is there any sense of, how great an area forest covered in Iceland during the time of the settlement? Well, yeah, I mean, there's this uh, kind of famous quote that's always uh, cited from uh, Latnamabok, uh, or the, the Book of Settlements. And, uh, yeah, it's um, this little bit that everywhere between the mountains and shore was coated in trees. And, um, you know, uh, very often you total, like like you can't really take these historical documents without a grain of salt. Uh, but, you know, for what it's worth, uh, a lot of scientists do agree that that's a pretty good uh, estimate of what the country would have like looked like uh, before settlement. Um, you know, I mean, it's maybe also a little bit interesting uh, to just point out that um, that in itself is not totally unique to Iceland uh, and that's because birch is this kind of pioneer species. And so, um, you know, I mean, even just all of Europe uh, after the Ice Age would have looked basically like Iceland did at the time of settlement because there's this very kind of uh, natural progression to how forests evolve over time. And so, you know, I mean, about 10,000 years ago or so uh, after Europe was covered by glaciers and they started receding, uh, Europe would have basically looked like an Icelandic forest um, because birch is pretty much always the first thing to move in uh, just because of the special features uh, that it has. You know, it can kind of tolerate a little bit colder climates, uh, like less nutrient-rich soils. Um, so, you know, I mean, to me, it was kind of just a little bit interesting to think about how the way that these Icelandic birch forests look like, I mean, that would have been, you know, I mean, pretty much just from Spain to Russia. I mean, up until pretty recently, like in, in, in the grand scheme of things, actually. Um, and, you know, that's also maybe kind of interesting to tie Iceland into like a bigger development, because I think that sometimes uh, there's this uh, temptation to see everything here as like totally unique. Uh, but, you know, that is kind of also just the natural development of forests uh, in Northern Europe, at least uh, birch tends to always be the first thing that settles. Um, you also mentioned the activist in California, Julia Butterfly Hill yeah. in your article. Is that a, that seems to me a particularly um, potent form of nominative, nominative, nominative determinism. <laughs> Someone named uh, Butterfly Hill climbs up onto a, a hill, essentially, to, to protect a redwood. And she stayed there for the two years? Two years. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is... Um, Nominal determinism. Determinism. Yes. <laughs> I'm tripping over my tongue. It's a Monday. Um, 
yeah, you know, I think that this, I think that that really qualifies to be a legend in the strict sense of the word, because it's this story that is so powerful that we kind of forget the details of the original, but it just kind of becomes this image that like lingers with us and kind of structures how we think about environmental activism because whether or no whether or not we remember her name i think that we all have this image of an environmental activist climbing up a tree and refusing to leave um and uh, this is definitely less intellectual but i have just been rewatching some arrested development here and there and there's a pretty funny episode that you know basically is about this uh and uh like this guy is just up in a tree and he won't leave um and you know i mean but so that's just to say that like this is such a powerful image that like it's totally shaped how we think and talk about environmental activism um and you know of course then the counterpoint to that is how you know, corporate and financial, uh, a lot of this work has become in recent years through things like, yeah, the uh, the carbon credit market. Yeah, and, and the criticism of the carbon credit market being that um, basically, I, I think you mentioned that one of your interviewees said that, well, while these things may look good on the surface, they may be serving to delay sort of larger meaningful action and actually sort of these big reforestation projects, especially if they're sort of monocultural, may actually lead to emissions themselves. Yeah. And also I found it quite fascinated that you mentioned that, you know, relatively barren grassland is quite capable of sequestering carbon dioxide in its own right. Yeah, this is a huge topic. Um, and, you know, to just, I, I'm not going to do it justice here, uh, but to just really kind of briefly sketch out some of the main contours there. Um, so the two main arguments, I suppose, against the carbon credit market are, you know, one, um, it's a Band-Aid and it might, yeah, be delaying more, extreme but necessary measures and the carbon credit market has like things always get very complicated when you introduce money into the equation uh, because in order to make a market you have to set up a bunch of rules and because people are economic actors and they will act in their own self-interest to you know like maximize their outcome uh, you always get outcomes that are very hard to predict from the rules that you set up in the beginning. And so there are a lot of weird contradictions that come out of the carbon credit market sometimes. And so, yeah, so this first argument against it, it's a Band-Aid. The second argument is maybe that it quite simply doesn't have the impact that it's claiming to have. And, you know, so there are a lot of weird contradictions that happen with this kind of thing because, yeah, I mean, like I was saying, it's very hard to predict the outcome of a complicated system. And so this example doesn't specifically come from Iceland, but, you know, there are some reports, for instance, of – so, okay, so maybe there is a green investment fund and – companies approach them uh, to kind of clean up their carbon profile. And maybe one of the things that this fund does is uh, in, let's, let's say a rainforest in Borneo, um, there's a native community there. And, you know, maybe this carbon fund will basically tell the native community, hey, um, you know, like you live next to a bunch of relatively pristine woodland, We'll just pay you, uh, say, 50 bucks a hectare to just not cut it down. Uh, but then at the same time, this community might also get 80 bucks uh, to plant one hectare of new carbon uh, or, or rather new carbon sequestering forest. And so, you know, what's going to happen? Well, they might cut down the pristine rainforest to plant basically not a forest but a tree plantation right i mean i think that like we've all been driving along and like we kind of see these forests that look a little bit uncanny because they're all evenly spaced you know perfectly like 
this little grid of like two meter, two meter, two meter. There's a tree and like, it doesn't look like a forest because it isn't like, it doesn't have this natural undergrowth. It doesn't have these kind of natural layers that a forest develops as it grows. You know, it is a plantation of trees. It's not a forest. Okay. So it's not always like that though. Right. I mean, like that's a kind of extreme example, but, um, to take an Icelandic example, you know, I mean, sometimes what happens though, when you have to plant at scale is, yeah, you harrow large portions of land, which is, you know, like you basically drag a tractor with uh, a harrow, which kind of tills the earth and kind of just, you know, I'm like, like you need to do this in order to plant sometimes to kind of just turn the soil over. Mm -hmm. But what can happen is that, yes, like uh, a lot of this, seemingly empty grassland it's it is actually doing something and it's storing carbon and churning up the land like this actually does release a lot of carbon and when these tree planting projects kind of take place on this industrial scale you know yeah like you're using tractors you're using maybe backhoes and other large machinery and stuff and it kind of becomes a construction project itself and there is a surprising amount of carbon emissions that can actually happen in the planting itself. And so, you know, sure, uh, you're planting some trees, um, but the kind of break-even point is maybe actually a lot further into the future than a lot of people might like to admit uh, because there's a lot of carbon created uh, during this process. Uh, you know, I mean, it's also worth mentioning that forests aren't perfect at carbon capture. I mean, trees die and then they release carbon. Um, just briefly, uh, one of the best ways to actually capture carbon is to just restore wetlands. Um, and historically in Iceland, uh, what the soil conservation service wanted people to do uh, was to drain lowland areas uh, to make it more suitable for farming. And so this is why when you drive around the countryside, uh, like very often in farms, you'll see these like long narrow ditches that are for drainage and for areas that are actually in agricultural use, this is still useful to drain those areas. So that way it can actually be farmable. But um, I mean, like historically what happened was that, you know, I mean, and again, this is a kind of example of, economic incentives are hard to predict. And so they paid farmers to dig these drainage ditches. And so what happens then is people dig more ditches than they actually need because they're getting paid by the government to do this. And so there's a lot of wetland areas in Iceland that have been drained that didn't actually need to be drained. And peat and turf are amazing at capturing carbon. And, you know, like whenever grass or moss or just any vegetation dies, it just falls into the swamp and it just stays there. And this is why things like peat are such amazing fuel sources because they're just super compact forms of carbon. Um, and so, you know, that's a really, that's a really long winded answer, but it's a really complicated topic and this whole carbon market stuff. Yeah. It's, it's not always clear what exactly it's doing and it and a lot of people might say that it's not quite the silver bullet that it is you know however then to play devil's advocate the problem right is that okay if if this doesn't work then we have to come up with another solution and whenever we kind of try to marry money and nature it's always going to be messy and you know i think that uh, the proponents of the carbon credit market system would say you know okay so what's the alternative like if we can't plant trees in this way, then you have to come up with the next solution. And that next solution hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the drainage ditches, the Icelandic government has been, um, what, what would you say they've been, uh, I guess, re reconverting them, um, shoveling, uh, massive amounts of dirt back into the ditches to restore the wetlands? Uh, I'm not aware of any like state action in that field. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe you know more about that than I do right now. Okay, yeah, well, I, I think there was some initiative on behalf of the government which mm. came under some criticism in which they were basically paying people to dig dirt back into the ditches to restore the wetlands. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that that uh, speaks to 
uh, the unforeseen consequences of economic initiatives. Like yeah, you mentioned. It, it, it's just always this paradox. I mean, um, my favorite example of this that I always uh, will mention to anybody. Are we, are we going to the Soviet Union? No, this is about snakes. Okay. Um, so in colonial India, um, the British government uh, was basically waging a war on cobras uh, because, you know, uh, the British colonialists weren't used to living around uh, a poisonous snake that can kill you. Um, and so they basically put like a bounty on cobras. And if you would just kind of bring the uh, the colonial magistrate or whatever, a dead cobra, you'd get some money. So, you know, what's going to happen? Well, people start breeding cobras. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, I think one of my favorite examples of this is, I think, uh, in the early days of the Soviet Union, the, the Communist Party would, uh, I think they, they offered to pay um, workers for nails manufactured and actually offered to pay um, by weight. Mm. So I, I think someone made basically one... One ton nail. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's great. Um, Just kind of roughly shape one huge chunk yes, of iron. <laughs> it's a less work and um, more money. Um, just, uh, I have a, I have a final question for you since you've been digging into uh, Icelandic forests. Um, do you know where uh, soil comes from? Dirt, earth. Well, uh, just hundreds of years of uh, plants living and dying and worms eating them. And just, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, topsoil is one of the most precious substances on the planet because it takes an extremely long time to make. When it's eroded away, it just completely desertifies the land that it's on and just renders it incapable of supporting plant life um i mean yeah uh <laughs> so also uh, a significant component is uh the erosion of rocks yes um me and my uh, four-year-old son were recently <laughs> digging into this together and uh it's funny what you can teach children i, I sometimes used to ask him um so what do what do plants need to uh survive and he's very quick to answer oh sunlight soil and uh, water, and then we went into the, and I was like, well, where does soil come from? And, oh, it's the erosion of rocks and the uh, cumulative death of plants over many, <laughs> many years. It's a long time. Yeah. Um, if I can just quickly insert one final fun fact, uh, just because this is the kind of thing that I live for, yeah. uh, and I love etymologies and word histories. Um, so one of the words for a forest in Icelandic is murk. Uh, which people might recognize from the kind of popular hiking area, Thosmurk. Um, and this is a really interesting word um, because uh, it goes way back to this uh, old idea for like a boundary. Um, and so like historically, uh, you know, you had maybe like a settlement or a village uh, and then, you know, everything that was kind of beyond the settlement, you know, I mean, and and, and you kind of think back to the, Iron Age in Denmark or something, and you know everything that was outside the village literally was a forest, and so murk was both the actual forest, like the trees, but it was also just anything outside of your town in a very general sense. And so mark, uh, as the sense of like a boundary, uh, is like like you kind of see it pop up in a lot of places in English. Uh, so I mean, like for instance. Um, there is a term for territory, uh, a march, uh, which would have been on the kind of periphery of an area. So this is also where the word Denmark comes from. This is the mark that the Danes live in, uh, because from the perspective of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, they were on the edges of civilization, right? So it's it's the Dane mark. Uh, I mean, also the, just the term landmark. Uh, like a landmark is something that kind of divides two areas from each other. And I mean, even the kind of older English uh, sense of the word mark to notice, you know, like it's, it's basically to divide two things. It's to kind of make a distinction to, uh, between two things. So, um, 
you know, I mean, this usage isn't really quite contemporary anymore, but, you know, we used to say things in English like mark me, and we still say things like mark my words. And that actually is, you know, going way, way back uh, to this very old idea of a mark is a divide between two things, and the other end of that divide is the forest. And I think that's kind of an interesting idea, that, like, the the forest is always this thing that's outside the town. That's fascinating. Yeah, I was also thinking while you were reading the, um, and speaking of sort of nominal determinism, the uh, the many Icelandic names that are based on trees. So you have birch, birkir, mm. you have uh, usp, which is, is that ash in English? Uh, I believe it's just aspen. Aspen, right? yeah. yeah. Usp is a, a female name in Icelandic traditionally. Yeah. And reynir, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if there are many cultures who name their people after trees, but Iceland is one of them. Well, I mean, it's also worth, uh, you know, for all the mythology nerds out there, you know, I mean, of course, uh, trees were very much a part of Norse cosmology. Uh, I mean, not just Yggdrasil, uh, but, you know, in the kind of, um, like in Volaspa, and like there's this telling of the end of the world, uh, and then this new world is created, and the like, like the two new humans uh, I'm completely blanking on their names right now, but they are named after trees. Yeah. So, like, there's this very kind of old idea between trees and people. And, you know, I mean, I think, like, maybe also to kind of wrap things up a little bit, um, you know, uh, it did kind of strike me, yes, in, like, how controversial, in a way, uh, that forestry practices in Iceland. But, you know, from my completely non-scientific perspective, uh, there is just something deeply human about wanting to be in a forest. I think that there's just something very universal about that. I think that there's just something that really kind of speaks to us about like being in this living environment where we're kind of, you know, like we're protected, we're sheltered, we're also away from it all. It's peaceful. Um, Yeah. Like, like to me, that's something that everywhere on earth needs. And I think that, uh, yeah, there's really something about forest that kind of speaks to us. Yeah. On that note, I think we'll uh, conclude our discussion. Thank you very much for, uh, some very interesting insights. Thank you for listening. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening please consider subscribing to Ice on Review at our website.